This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or visit us on bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Welcome to part one of our special two-part Outlook series, in which we speak with Bearings experts across asset classes and geographies to get their views on 2020, including the biggest risks they see on the horizon, the most compelling opportunities, and even some bold predictions for the year ahead. These episodes are different from our normal shows where we do deep dives with one or two guests in that we'll speak to nine different experts over the course of two episodes, covering everything from macro and geopolitical views to EM debt, high yield, equities, real estate, private equity, private debt, and more. Check out the episode segments listed right below the episode description on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Here we've included minute markers for each speaker and topic to help you navigate the episodes quickly and efficiently. So without further ado, first up, we've got Dr. Christopher Smart, Barings Chief Global Strategist and Head of the Barings Investment Institute. All right, Christopher Smart, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. You, from your seat, have obviously quite a broad view on markets, so I'm very interested in in what you've got to say on all these topics. So maybe let's start with risks. I think there are two sets of risks, in my mind, going into 2020. One is a series of cyclical risks, because as you know, we're late in the cycle. Everybody is looking at the U.S. consumer, and everybody's wondering how long the consumer can be as strong as it has been to drive U.S. growth and global growth. And I think what is beginning to build in people's minds is doubt over fixed asset investment. That's been lagging over the last couple of years, mainly because of uncertainty around trade and the broader global outlook. If you don't know where your global supply chain may be impacted by tariffs, you don't know where your addressable market will be impacted by trade policy, then you may hold off on investment. And I think that is one of the biggest concerns going into next year from a cyclical point of view. I think there's another secular trend building around climate risks and climate policy. And whatever your views are on the science of climate, the policy, the politics around climate, I think it is increasingly moving to the center of investors' concerns because rules are changing, laws are changing, regulations are changing, Mm -hmm. the cost of carbon is changing in certain parts of the world, and the technologies around energy, energy production, energy transmission are changing. And I think if you're an investor, you increasingly have to take those sorts of concerns into account. Whether that really becomes front and center next year or the Mm -hmm. year after, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's coming quickly. We've obviously got a big event here happening in the U.S. in 2020 in the form of our presidential election. Talk to us about what that interplay is like between the election and the risks that you've just described. The election obviously draws a lot of attention because it is so dynamic, unpredictable, and emotions run very high. I am of the view that ultimately investors invest for returns, and they look at fixed asset investment, the economic data, they look at how technology and environmental risks may be changing things, and that the politics comes third. But obviously, we're going into an election debate where trade is going to be very prominent, and our relationship with China will be high in everybody's minds, and that will play through 
to concerns about fixed asset investment and whether maybe you should just wait until after the election before you pull the trigger and invest in that particular factory. On climate issues, obviously, that's top of mind because it is so contentious here in the United States. And the chances of regulation moving one way or another, depending on the outcome of the election, will, in the short term, I think, influence investor decisions. But some of these are longer-term concerns that play out both at the city, at the state, and in other international jurisdictions, so that the impact of the U.S. election will be important, but isn't going to determine the final outcome of anybody's decision around climate risks. How about looking ahead on the more positive side? As you look at 2020 and all that it represents, what do you see from an opportunity standpoint? Well, I think the biggest opportunity globally is uh, related to technology. And that's a big word that covers a lot of different areas. But I think what we're seeing right now is a convergence of forces around cloud technology, cloud storage, mm -hmm. inexpensive sensor technology, mobile networks, and data analysis, big data algorithms. And I think you've got such advances in those four areas where it creates opportunities for businesses across the economy, whether it is in oil exploration or airlines and transportation or operating heavy equipment or factories. There is now an ability for businesses to monitor and control the physical world and almost predict what is going to happen based on a very rich set of databases costs of doing business are going to decline in some areas very dramatically. The risks of doing businesses will decline in some areas. And businesses that aren't taking advantage of those technologies, I think, are going to have a lot of trouble from those that are. And if I put you on the spot here and we look specifically at 2020 with regards to some of the technologies that you just mentioned, are there one or two that you think hit a quote-unquote tipping point? Well, I think we've just done a white paper with our colleagues, Matt, Ward and Colin Moore in London about the disruptive forces of technology. And they would, I think, draw our attention to cloud storage in particular, which creates a very inexpensive platform on which all kinds of startups can lever their ability to pull themselves up by the bootstraps that they wouldn't have been able to take advantage of before. And I think that is a very important driver for a lot of change. Okay, turning ahead to predictions. And I know these can be difficult to make, but I'm going to ask you the question. Tell me, what is one bold prediction that you have for the year ahead? Well, it may not be so bold to say that 2020 is going to deliver returns similar or better than this year. But I think it's possible that we get a world in which Inflation remains under control. Central banks can continue to be accommodative. We get a little bit of fiscal support, not just in Europe, but in the United States. And that companies are able to continue to deliver the earnings they've delivered over the last year. The difference might well be, though, that we finally get an outperformance outside the United States, where the dollar might weaken a little bit. Europe, where there have been headwinds related to Brexit, related to the German economy, start to dissipate and we get recovery in European markets relative to the United States. At the same time, there are a number of emerging markets where the growth picture looks pretty good, and a little bit of weakening in the dollar exchange rate can be very helpful for those currencies, uh, those debt and equity markets. So I think those would be a couple of things that I would expect. Yeah, I think that Europe potential outperformance call is a really interesting one, just simply because we've been in a period 
international markets relative to the U.S. have been in a period of underperformance for almost a decade now. Christopher, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. That call on Europe feels contrarian to me, and we'll talk more about that later. But next up, we'll go to the other side of the world to hear from Hong Kong-based head of Greater China Investments, Kim Dow. All right, Kim Dow, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I know it is late Hong Kong time. I know that uh, you've got protests on your mind and other things, but I appreciate you calling in and talking to us for a few minutes about your outlook for 2020. So let's get right into it. That's a pleasure. And Hong Kong never sleeps. So uh, <laughs> please ask me uh, any questions you like. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. So let's get into it. Uh, let's talk about what you see as the biggest risk on the horizon for markets in 2020. Yes, we believe that if there is any sign of a renewed escalation of trade and technology tensions between the U.S. and China, that would be the most worrying one for us. And the reason I'm saying that is because the Chinese economy and the world economy at the moment are not very strong. So if there were any additional punitive tariffs Mm -hmm. or sanctions imposed on China, that could precipitate a Chinese slowdown into a Chinese recession. And if that were to occur, it would have reverberations all around the world. And I think that all um, countries would want to avoid that. Now, a re-escalation of trade and technology tensions, obviously it's been something that's been continuously in the headlines for the last more than a year. What is the probability, would you say, that we see a real escalation along these lines? Given all the signals which we have seen from President Trump and President Xi, we believe that uh, it is low for the moment. In 2020, obviously, that is a very important election year in the U.S. And as a result of that, I think that it is fair to say that President Trump would want this uh, trade tension to be resolved on a victorious basis and also as quickly as possible so that uh, he can focus on the election for next year. And at the same time, President Xi also has some issues in China to resolve, especially given that the economy in China has been slowing down quite dramatically as well. So we think that both nations actually have the same idea and the same willingness to try to find a solution, at least for the phase one of the trade talks. So although this is temporary, we think that it is um, very positive for, for sentiment in the market. And hopefully this will lead to a truce in the trade talks over the next 12 months as well. So although we are aware that this risk could come back and bite us, but we think that the probability of this risk actually is not that high over the next 12 months. That's great context. I mean, I think obviously the tug of war, I guess, between these two superpowers will be something that we are watching for a long time to come. But it's interesting to me that from your perspective, both sides potentially have incentives to uh, essentially call a truce in 2020, and which I could see as being potentially a positive thing for markets. Let's move on, Kim, and talk about opportunities. So tell me, as you look across the kind of vast universe of global markets, what you're seeing out there, what jumps out at you as potentially interesting as an opportunity for 2020? Um, in fact, for next year, we believe that actually there are quite a few opportunities for investors to look at. But when I went through all different uh, opportunities. There is one which, uh, from my viewpoint, actually stood out, and that is emerging debt in local currencies and emerging equities. Mm. And that 
potentially be one of the most attractive investment opportunities for next year. Interesting. So what's behind that call? Two reasons. The first one has to do with the U.S. dollar, and the second one has to do with valuation. But let me talk about the U.S. dollar first. Well, the U.S. dollar has been very strong against many currencies, including emerging currencies of the past five years. And that actually has not been a positive uh, factor for emerging markets. But we think that the U.S. dollar is likely going to weaken over the next 12 months. And the reasons are the following. First, it has to do with growth. We believe that the growth differential between the U.S. and emerging nations will narrow over the next 12 months. So the U.S. is slowing down a bit, Mm -hmm. whereas emerging nations have appear to have found the bottom and their economies are recovering somewhat. So that is good for emerging markets. The second one is interest rate differentials. We believe that that differential is also narrowing. And it's narrowing because the U.S. Federal Reserve has been cutting rates, whereas in the case of emerging markets, some have actually cut rates also, but others have held their interest rates the same. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the differential actually has been narrowing as well once again favoring emerging market currencies. And thirdly, the um, Federal Reserve has started to inject liquidity into the financial system to the tune of something like 60 billion US dollars a month, starting from October 2019, going to April 2020. So last time when the US Federal Reserve injected liquidity in the system, that was in the years between 2009 to 2013. Mm. And during those years, actually, the U.S. dollar tend to weaken when this quantitative easing program going on. Now, the Fed is not saying that they are doing QE, but it looks as if it is QE. And that's why we think that the U.S. dollar has been a little bit weaker of the past few weeks. So when we combine the growth differential, when we combine the interest rate differential, and when we combine the fact that emerging economies have started to show some recovery, plus cheap valuation, we believe that emerging assets are likely going to become a very attractive asset class for 2020. That's really interesting, especially in light of some of the movements that we've saw throughout 2019. I think with regards to emerging market debt, specifically the sovereign hard currency debt outperformed in 2019. So effectively, this is a call that that trend may reverse and you may see the more local currency perform better. So I guess moving on, as we look ahead to the year in front of us, talk to me about just one prediction that you'd like to make. I think that it is quite a plausible scenario in which we see a bear market in safe government bonds hmm. and other defensive asset classes and a bull market in growthy assets. And growthy assets tend to include equities, high-yield bonds, cyclical stocks, and value assets such as emerging markets and commodities. Hmm. So we think that this could be a reversal of what we are seeing in 2019. Interesting. And, and what would be the driving forces behind that? There are basically three elements. The first one is that we believe that investors actually are priced in too much of a fear of U.S. recession and the global recession for next year. Uh, this came about because the U.S. economy has been growing for about 10 years and it is slowing down at the moment. And also, uh, a few months ago, the U.S. yield curve went inverse. And usually, 
uh, an inversion of the U.S. yield curve has tended to suggest that the U.S. economy would fall in a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. But recently, we actually have seen a reversal of all that. So we have seen the reversal of the trade situation. At least the two governments are talking to each other. Uh, and negotiating, hopefully, a deal. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we actually are seeing the U.S. yield curve reversing from an inverse position to a positive yield curve again. And the positive yield curve actually suggests better growth ahead of us. And so we think that the combination of the fear of a recession actually has transformed itself into maybe hopes of recovery. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, actually, it tends to favor growthy assets as against defensive assets. And the last point I would like to make is that defensive assets appear to be quite expensive. Bond yields are very, very low, whereas in the case of the equity market or high-yield bonds or emerging local debt, their yields are higher. And also, when the economies are growing, they tend to benefit a lot more. So that's the reason for the growthy assets as against very defensive assets. Yeah, that's really interesting. I take that to be a pretty bullish call and a pretty pro-cyclical call. And we're in this strange world right now where making a bullish call seems like a contrarian call, even though the S&P 500 has been breaking out to new highs. But, uh, you know, the, the headlines are pretty much doom and gloom. There's a lot of worry about stress in different parts of the credit markets. So actually hearing this thesis that you could see more cyclical assets, more growth assets, outperform in 2020, I think is actually a pretty contrarian call to make, but a really interesting one given all the points that you laid out. Uh, indeed. Uh, I think that one more point I would like to add is that in 2019, in fact, um, uh, according to the statistics offered by a number of brokers, global investors have net sold about $200 billion of equities, and then they bought about $400 billion worth of bonds, and they parked something like $550 billion in cash and money market funds because they were fearful of a U.S. recession uh, coming in 2020. However, now that the situation has changed and there is some hope of the global economy continuing to grow, so they may have to reverse that position. And any reversal of that position would definitely favor equities and high-yield bonds and emerging market assets. And that's the reason for my contrarian thinking <laughs> at, at this stage. That's really interesting that there may be some technical support for this call as well. Well, Kim, very enlightening. I really appreciate it. Again, I know you're calling in late from Hong Kong. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate getting your local market view. That was my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. It was fascinating to hear Kim sounding bullish on EM currencies and risky assets generally. Let's see if our next guest, Omatunde Lawal, head of Bearings Emerging Markets Corporate Debt Group, shares his sentiment. All right, Tande Lawal, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. You've got such a great perspective on all things emerging markets. So it's great to have you here and get your perspective. Looking forward to 2020. So let's start out with risks. Tell me what you think is the biggest risk that you see for markets in the year ahead. I think it's probably worth recapping the sort of risks that have affected the global markets mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. I'd say 2018, we had risks on multiple fronts, largest of which was the US-China trade tensions ratcheting mm -hmm. up. 
And then we had the US Fed raising rates. We had high oil prices, high commodity prices. Uh, sure. And then we had Turkey and Argentina crisis. We had elections in two key EM mm -hmm, economies mm -hmm. during 2018, Brazil and Mexico to be exact, which introduced their own volatility. And then US and Russia tensions in 2018, which led to sanctions against Russia. And then coming into 2019, what we saw was some of those headwinds turn into tailwinds mm -hmm. or dissipate at least. Mm -hmm. US-Russia relationships have been relatively stable or benign in 2019. The elections are out of the way for Brazil and Mexico, and we've seen a resumption of sort of business as usual in those countries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We've had the Fed shifting to a more dovish stance with several rate cuts. But we've had the US-China trade tensions continue to rumble on sure, through 2019 sure. with ebbs and flows and positive and negative news flow from there. Argentina has obviously been very typical again in 2019. And so when I look forward to 2020, for me, looking back to the last two years, I'd say the single biggest source of volatility or risk for our markets continues to be US-China trade tensions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think depending on how that plays out, that could be a huge source of volatility. However, when I look to 2020 and the US elections coming up, for me, I think we're probably more likely to see a managed truce of the next 12 months because... From a pragmatic perspective, it would make sense for Trump to have some sort of win sure. to hit the campaign trail with. And so when I think about that, it would make sense for him to seek to reach some sort of agreement mm -hmm. or, you know, this managed truce, as it were. And that also gives China something to really sort of take the downward drag off their growth as well. And so really, those would be the key things to yeah, watch yeah. in 2020. Yeah, there's never a shortage of political risks. I think when it comes to emerging markets, I think you're looking back the last couple of years is a great reminder because it almost always seems like, oh my gosh, there are so many risks to consider. Absolutely. Um, but but it, that's kind of the name of the game. I think when it comes to emerging markets is factoring those in and doing your credit homework. As you look forward to 2020, are there any hotspots that you've got your eye on in particular? It's good you mentioned that, actually. I think one of the key things that I am keeping my eye on for 2020 has really been the wave of protests and public unrest that we've seen in parts of the world. I'd say the Hong Kong protests have perhaps been the most topical, which has been on the news a big part of 2019. And I'd say that's something worth keeping an eye on because we've seen that through parts of LATAM as well, where we've had protests in Chile and Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, even parts of Indonesia, Lebanon. You know, there are people hitting the streets and this wave of discontent. We've got to be careful and keep our eye on, on the unintended consequences mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. these sort of protests and the changes they sometimes bring about in the administration of these countries and what that then means for the world. That makes a lot of sense. I know it's something that you and your team are doing a lot of work on, not only analyzing the balance sheets of the, the companies that you're investing in, but obviously also analyzing the sovereign and the macro situation to understand that backdrop. Okay, so we talked about risks. Let's talk about opportunities now because there are opportunities out there in emerging markets. So as you look ahead to 2020, what jumps out at you from an opportunity standpoint? I'm going to go out on a limb and say short duration high yield mm. is the biggest opportunity okay. set, I think, for various reasons. I think the one that, you know, the first that springs to mind is the fact that we've got uh, so much negatively yielding assets out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And investors naturally are looking for asset classes which can give them that positive yield. Yep. And specifically for EM corporates, when I look at it, 
fundamentals have been very solid and very stable for several years now. You've had high single digit to double digit growth in revenue and EBITDA over the last few years. You have pretty low default rates. You have very solid balance sheets with good cash positions and net leverage stats, which are sometimes better than developed market stats even. Mm. And when I look overall at spread levels, the valuation aspect of things, and I look within EM corporates, when I look at the investment grade versus the high yield segment of the EM corporate asset class, Mm -hmm. I see that basis still quite elevated to historical averages, which suggests to me that the high yield bucket still remains very good value versus investment grade. Sure. And then when you think about the, the points that we discussed earlier about the outlook for 2020 and potential tailwinds continuing with the managed truce mm-hmm. with US and China and potentially US rates staying relatively stable or you know possibly 10-year rates edging higher, I'd say the call would be perhaps to stay on the more conservative end as say at the short duration end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. but in the high yielding names um, yeah, yeah. within the spectrum of ratings and putting that together, we would say that's perhaps the most compelling opportunity for 2020. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, search for yield continues, high yields underperformed investment grade throughout 2019. So maybe there's a relative value opportunity there. And then your point around maybe taking a little bit less rate risk or duration risk in 2020, a year where we could possibly see rates move higher, makes a lot of sense to me. So let's finish with predictions. So I know I have a feeling it's going to be tough to get you to go on the record with anything too bold here, but <laughs> what, what would be... I don't have a crystal ball with you today. <laughs> okay, so give me one prediction for 2020. When I look at the year ahead and the key events coming up, mm-hmm. I'd say there's a, a pretty decent chance we get sort of stable rates, stable growth. And that sort of speaks to that managed truce that we spoke about earlier. And in that sort of environment, potentially you're looking for that stable, high carry product or investment that you can deploy cash to. And that takes me back to where we see the opportunities is that it should be sort of the short dated, high yielding sort of subsect of the asset classes. Yeah, yeah. Got it. So it's all about the managed truce in Absolutely. 2020. So uh, we'll see if that comes to fruition. And uh, if so, we'll obviously monitor the impact on all of these markets. Tunde, very valuable to get your perspective. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for having me. Continuing on the theme of emerging markets, let's turn next to Dr. Ricardo Adroge, head of Bearings Global Sovereign Debt and Currencies Group. All right, Ricardo Adroge, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Great. Thank you for dialing in from Bearings Boston office today. Uh, You have a very broad remit uh, looking at sovereign debt rates and currency. So I'm very interested in getting your perspective here on risks, opportunities, and even predictions for the year ahead. So let's start with the risks. What do you see as the biggest risk facing global markets in 2020? The risk that I'm the most concerned about, although not the highest probability risk, is the financial an economic crisis in China, a recession in China caused by the financial system. Okay, so China is a country that has grown five, six, seven percent in years past. Seeing a recession, even if you think it's a low probability event, would obviously be an event that had very negative consequences for global markets. So tell me more about this risk. Yeah, China is the one economy in the world that has relevered quite aggressively since the 2008-2009 great financial crisis. In the recent years, the government seemed to have honed its efforts to reducing 
the pace of leveraging and seems to have started to delever the economy. Any process of deleveraging could has the risk of going wrong in the sense that when the economy starts to delever, the potential for financial panic arise, and maybe panic is too strong a word, but the potential of investors deciding to take some of their investments away from the financial system, the incentives go up, and as that happens, then that gets compounded with not enough credit in the system, which in turn causes potential defaults, and defaults in turn causes more investors to get concerned about the situation, the financial situations of their savings. And that in turn, if it is not managed correctly, could result into an economic recession, financial crisis slash economic recession. The risk uh, of that, I think, is relatively low, much, much lower than 50%, but I would say straight around 10%. But financial crises are very difficult to predict because at the end of the day, it's a confidence game. Obviously, that's a risk that would have very negative consequences if it came to fruition, but interesting that you're putting about a 10% probability on that scenario. How does the trade war impact that scenario? Because it sounds like what you're talking about mostly is a Chinese domestic issue with the government trying to manage down leverage in an orderly fashion. Is the trade war another pressure or how are you thinking about that? Uh, the trade war is, I would characterize it as a minor additional pressure. China has been able to reallocate resources quite effectively in the past, and we don't see a reason why China couldn't do it so in the future. And as trade restrictions from the U.S. have been affecting the Chinese economy, the Chinese authorities have very successfully managed those in the year 2019. And so it's difficult to imagine that those would get significantly worse, even trade restrictions from the U.S. go up. So yes, my concern is more a policy mistake on the side of the authorities is more the fear that the effort to delever the economy goes wrong. Well, it is not all doom and gloom in emerging markets or currencies or rates. There are some positive things out there to look at as we look forward to 2020. Tell me what you see as the biggest opportunity on the horizon over the next 12 months. Currencies are starting to look like the most attractive opportunity, primarily emerging market currencies. So we're not calling necessarily for a weakness on the U.S. dollar, but emerging market currencies doing quite well against developed market currencies in general. And what would be the driver behind that? Because we did speak with Kim Doe earlier about the U.S. dollar. He made some good points about how you could see U.S. dollar weakness, but it sounds like that's not necessarily your call. But tell me, what would lead to strength in emerging market currencies broadly? So the world has gone through a process of broad deleveraging since the great financial crisis, and that has been manifested in portfolio flows and banking flows getting away from riskier assets, from emerging markets among them. And one can see those in the data released by the Bank of International Settlements, and one can see those flows from the portfolio flows in the reports that the IMF and others put out. We believe that after over uh, 11 years since the great financial crisis, the global financial system seemed to be in a better position to start re-leveraging again. If that were to happen, that would be the main source of funding for emerging market currencies. It is important to highlight that most of these emerging markets, because they were facing outflows and because they faced restrictions from the external accounts, they have been running increasingly smaller current account deficits on aggregate. There is a lot of countries that now are running current account surpluses. And some of the ones that were running large current account deficits are now running significantly smaller current account deficits. 
And so the financing needs of emerging markets have continued to come down because they didn't have financing. And we think that in 2020, there's a chance, there's quite a strong chance that financing will start to come back. And as it comes back, emerging market currencies would be the most attractive asset to hold. Okay. And then how about just in terms of more broadly, if you look at different asset classes that would benefit? So typically emerging market currencies go hand in hand with emerging market equities. So when emerging market currencies do well, emerging market equities do well too. And so does emerging local debt. Emerging local debt obviously has the currency component embedded in it, much like the emerging market equities. In the case of emerging market debt, if we are right, it is unlikely that the rates will have another very good year because we don't think global rates will have a good year, 2020. But on the other hand, emerging market currencies will, and therefore, or most likely will, and equities, emerging market equities, would likely have a very good year as well. Got it. So whereas in 2019, emerging market sovereign debt outperformed, which is obviously hard currency denominated, what you're saying is that given the potential strength of EM currencies in 2020, we could see a reversal in that. We could see emerging market local debt outperform in the year ahead. Yeah, that is my expectation. All right, so Ricardo, looking ahead at 2020, give me one bold prediction. Well, my bold prediction happens to be the same as my main prediction. is emerging market currencies will do very well. It will be probably one of the best asset classes to all. Got it. Well, that is quite an interesting picture that you're painting across risks, opportunities, and predictions. So, Ricardo, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So interesting that this bullish call on EM currencies seems to be shared by more than one of Bearings investment leaders. Our last guest today, David Bertaki, head of Bearings International and World Equity Group, makes the case for international equities, but not before he alerts us to a potential risk on the horizon. All right, David Bertaki, thank you so much for joining me today. Really good to be here. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate you dialing in from our uh, London office today. So let's get right to it. As you survey the landscape for global markets in 2020, what is the biggest risk you see on the horizon? Well, we think the biggest risk to investment markets in 2020 uh, could be stagflation, a combination of low economic growth and rising inflation. This could be an investment headwind because, well, one, lower growth flows through to lower corporate earnings, and two, rising inflation you know, likely weighs on profit margins and maybe even requires higher interest rates, not something that's likely to be good for equity valuations. Mm. We've had low economic growth this business cycle, but fortunately, we've also had low inflation and therefore low interest rates. And the result has been this has been a great environment for growth stocks. Companies that have been able to grow earnings when growth is scarce have benefited from their higher earnings and from higher valuations. So if we do see the reemergence of inflation, how would it change this environment, I guess? Adding inflation to the mix, you're right, it changes the investment dynamic, but fortunately it still offers us some profitable opportunities for equities. Higher inflation likely means that we have a world with somewhat higher interest rates. So the key for us is to look for companies that are not credit dependent and that have growth in their end markets and that have pricing power. We would describe companies that are not credit dependent as you know those that have strong balance sheet. You know they're not reliant on markets or banks to provide funding. They're able to fund their growth from internally generated cash, and also they have customers whose purchase decisions don't require borrowing large sums of money. So, what types of companies might do well in this environment? 
Well, if we see greater wage inflation, then it's companies that sell uh, things to consumers, like consumer staples companies, luxury good companies, companies in the leisure sector, maybe hotel groups or restaurants. Those kinds of companies will do well. If inflation arises out of commodity prices, then it's probably resource companies or uh, especially the industrial companies that provide the capital equipment for those resource companies to grow their businesses. The bottom line is that rising inflation might make the investing environment more complicated, but in our view, well-chosen equity should prove to be a good way for investors to preserve and to grow their purchasing power. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me that inflation has largely been absent this cycle. So perhaps you could make the argument that there's even some investor complacency around considering this risk. So I think those comments are particularly telling. How about if we think about opportunities? What's jumping out at you as the most compelling opportunity uh, for 2020? We think international equities, especially in the emerging markets, the UK and Japan, look attractive to us. US equities have had a fantastic run over the past 10 years and have outperformed most other markets. And that's well-deserved. The U.S. has had better economic growth, better earnings growth, a rising corporate profit share of GDP, and falling corporate taxes. But, you know, we think a lot of the tailwinds that U.S. equities have had over this cycle are unlikely to be repeated. So, you know, just for example, it's going to be difficult to further reduce U.S. corporate taxes beyond the Trump tax cuts that we saw in 2017. And then just on uh, the corporate profit share of GDP, it's unlikely that that can rise further without becoming an even bigger political issue than it already is. So does that mean that U.S. equities are not attractive at this point? The U.S. equity market is broad and deep. So I think there's always going to be some compelling investments to be made in that market. However, I guess what we're saying is in aggregate, we think international equity markets may be more compelling We think they've got cheaper valuations and better relative growth prospects. And certainly the long history of relative performance shows that regional equity leadership has changed on a fairly regular basis. And if we look at just this past cycle, a change looks due now. It really is quite staggering when you look at the outperformance of the S&P 500 versus some of the international equity markets. If there is a mean reversion trade, it could be a quite powerful force, whether it's in 2020 or beyond. You know, looking ahead, I would like to ask you for a prediction, if you would be so kind. So tell me, as you look into your crystal ball for 2020, give me one prediction. Well, we think 2020 might be the year that we see uh, the reemergence of wage inflation in, in the U.S. The current economic cycle is the longest in history, and U.S. unemployment today stands at 3.6%. Based on past cycles, U.S. hourly earnings should be rising around 4.5% per annum, but they're only doing about 3.5%. However, the acceleration we've seen just in recent quarters suggests more inflation is to come. Interesting. So what could potentially drive wage inflation, which has been fairly absent in this cycle? I think the first driver could be just the decline we've seen in global trade over recent years, and especially the decline that we're seeing uh, as a result of the trade war between the U.S. and China. The, The prior period of growing global trade allowed cheaper labor from around the world to access what was a lucrative U.S. market via their traded goods. The U.S. benefited from you know, obtaining cheap goods, but in return saw an erosion of pricing power for its workers. Declining global trade should see some of that pricing power return. So, you know, we think that's one potential catalyst. 
The second driver is uh, politics. All of the U.S. presidential candidates for the Democratic Party are, are striving to make wages and inequality key issues for the 2020 election. But even the Trump administration's current tariff policy is aimed at protecting U.S. jobs and helping U.S. workers get a better deal. So, you know, in our view, regardless of the election outcome, we believe the political will to help U.S. workers remains, and that should see wage inflation rise. So as an equity investor, how do you navigate this environment whereby you may be seeing wages rise for the first time, or I guess significantly rise for the first time in quite some time? Well, you're right. Rising wages can be um, a headwind for equities, but as investors, we can mitigate this in a number of ways. So, so first of all, you know, we focus our research effort on companies with pricing power. There will be companies that are able to absorb wage inflation and, and pass that on to customers. But secondly, is to look for those companies that have strong social credentials. Companies with good labor relations and high employee satisfaction can have a competitive advantage over their peers. And, you know, that puts them in a good position to deal with wage pressures. Yeah, that's great perspective. And that reminds me of a lot of the work that you and the team do around considering ESG factors. And it also reminds me just of some of the broader trends that we're seeing going on globally, where you're seeing a move away from capitalism in its purest form, meaning just focused solely on profits. And you're seeing companies more and more focused on serving multiple stakeholders, whether it's their employees or their communities and obviously also their shareholders. So I think some of these structural trends that you've described, it does make a lot of sense that you could see them ultimately lead to some wage inflation here. So very interesting prediction. And I really appreciate you joining us and getting your perspective. So David, thanks so much. Really happy to speak. Thanks, Greg. I think David makes a really strong case for U.S. wage inflation in 2020. And it'll be fascinating to see that play out in the context of the political environment described earlier by Dr. Smart and others. Well, that is it for part one of our conversation. I hope you found this whirlwind tour of global markets helpful. In part two, we'll cover high yield and investment grade credit, private credit, private equity, and real estate. You can also find a written version of this conversation on bearings.com under viewpoints. And remember to reference the episode segments below the episode description on whichever platform you're listening on to help you navigate speakers and topics in this special two-part series. Thanks again for listening to today's show. If you have feedback or ideas on how we can improve it, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R- ings.com. And if you'd like to stay up to date with our latest episodes, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're there, please take a moment to rate the show or leave us a review. They're all very much appreciated and they make the show easier for others to find. Thanks again for listening.